When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary. Because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We want to get people back to work. We've got to be paving the pathways. It is up to Congress to kind of set the rules of the road, but you have to wonder what Facebook's final objective is in that. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. If they just simply reopened the economy and returned everyone back to work, we would be, I think, in a better situation today. Washington may squander its best chance to make long overdue investments in our infrastructure. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden is back in the bubble. I just got back, too. Members of the House will be here tomorrow to push the debt ceiling higher until December, leaving Democrats little time to celebrate kicking the can ever closer to year end. Welcome to Monday and the fastest hour in politics as we bring you the latest from Bloomberg Congress reporter Billy House in just a moment and insights today from Ed Mills, Washington policy analyst at Raymond James. We'll turn a little bit later on to regulating crypto and comments from Jamie Dimon that are still rippling on the terminal here. We'll talk about it with Kristen Smith, executive director of the Blockchain Association. And because no one takes a holiday around here, we have your classic panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are here for the hour. So let's go. Speaking of no holidays, let's see how the markets did today. Listen to Charlie Pellet. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the Monday edition. What happened to that feeling? Remember the end of last week, people were cheering a deal on the debt ceiling, feeling pretty good about getting something done. You know that feeling now when you wake up after a long weekend, you realize it's right back to work? They haven't even passed the bill in the House yet. That, by the way, is expected tomorrow. The president says, of course, he'll sign it. If you dropped off the end of last week, this is a bill to raise the debt ceiling. and It'll last through the beginning of December, just before he left for the weekend, though. Senator Mitch McConnell sent President Biden a letter saying, you're welcome, and we will not do it again. Democrats will have to handle this from here, he says. That's after McConnell faced some real opposition within his own party to do this short-term deal. Not everybody's very happy about it. So no wonder the troops were out over the weekend, led by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Sunday morning television, to warn of the dire consequences, even before the House passes this new bill of a possible credit default she appeared on ABC this week. There's an enormous amount at stake. Uh, a failure to raise the debt ceiling would probably cause a recession and could even result in a financial you, crisis. It would be a catastrophe. A catastrophe does not sound like someone about to celebrate the signing of a bill to raise the debt ceiling. Of course, knowing the market, the investment community, the media, the news media will not stay quiet for long. 
as we move closer to this date, December 3rd, if you're playing along on your home game. So a perfect time right now. Let's get it started by Bloomberg Congress reporter Billy House. Billy, it's great to have you today at this moment. Lawmakers are being called back into town. Uh, is a vote tomorrow a sure thing for starters? And, and will any Republicans in the House vote for this debt ceiling bill? Uh, probably not. There might be a couple, but it, it is seen as pretty much a sure thing, at least tomorrow's vote. There's not seen as any defectors really in the Democratic ranks. Yep. Uh, one thing that will be odd about such an important vote is that a lot of the lawmakers won't even be in town. They're sending in their proxies <laughs> to their buddies, okay. but it will pass. And, and then, of course, we'll be in, we'll be OK till December 3rd. Uh, and that's not too far from now. And that's the same day, of course, that government funding uh, expires. I presume now we're still going to be these are still going to be the priorities, uh, even though we have this October 31st kind of self-imposed deadline by Speaker Pelosi to deal with infrastructure and reconciliation. How do they deal with this or is it a walk and chew gum where we're actually writing legislation on all of these at the same time? That's what they're going to try to do. But, of course, they had all you know, summer and in the beginning of the fall to do that. So I've never believed that they could get done with the uh, uh, Biden's huge, massive economic agenda by uh, the end of September. And uh, I think now we're staring straight into uh, probably late November, December at best. So the October 31st uh, idea by Speaker Pelosi is is wishful thinking on the infrastructure reconciliation part. That's her target date, but that's also pegged because the the current already in place temporary funding for transportation or extension of funding uh, uh, expires again on that date. So that's why she set a target date for that smaller part of the Biden economic package, the $550 billion in added money for highways to be passed. Wow. But then we have all the same intricacies about which part of the party wants to vote first on the other part versus this part, and none of that seems to have been resolved yet. What's the most likely scenario uh, while you're with us, Billy House? Is it a reconciliation bill that deals with both government funding and the debt ceiling? Probably, uh, but it's really hard to say. They would need some, uh, uh, you know, magic moments over there in the Senate, and those haven't been coming very often. So, again, we're all in limbo. We basically just push things off. I can feel the magic, thanks to Billy House. It's great to to have your expertise as ever with us on Sound On. Billy, let's bring in Ed Mills, Washington Policy Analyst and Managing Director at Raymond James. It's good of you to be here today. Uh, Ed, what's the Democrat strategy from here? Do you continue to press Republicans on the debt ceiling or just get this done as a party for the good of the country, take a big victory lap? You know, it's uh, a combination of factors. Uh, This has increasingly become a fight over uh, the filibuster itself in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, uh, was trying to create a crisis that um, the only option was going to be either abolish the filibuster, at least on the debt limit, or default. Mitch McConnell offered an off-ramp here that Joe Manchin really wanted to take, uh, Senator Cinema really wanted to take, And what you're already seeing right now is Senator Manchin immediately after that vote discussing the need for reconciliation come December. This very much was not crisis averted. It was just crisis delayed. Understood. I mean, we're now now we have, you know, arguably twice the problem because these both expire on the same day. Do you think it's a reconciliation piece of legislation then that deals with both of these issues, debt ceiling, government funding, get it done? That is the most likely scenario. Um, Nothing is guaranteed here in D.C. 
The bigger issue in my mind is what does Senator Sinema want? I do think that if you are setting up a scenario where you now have uh, Senator Manchin arguing the need for a reconciliation vote, you're not going to just do the reconciliation vote on the debt limit. You want to add other things. What those other things are are most likely whatever of the Build Back Better plan uh, of Biden uh, it can be included. Is that $1.9 trillion? Is it something closer to the 3.5 that progressives want. Oh, so you think they piled everything. This is the whole soft infrastructure, debt ceiling, government funding all in one massive piece of legislation. That's generally, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's where we're headed. Um, And if, you you know, they're not going to do two separate reconciliation processes here. Um, The, you know, liberals and progressives have been wanting to guarantee a vote on reconciliation Doing the debt limit through reconciliation is a guaranteed vote on reconciliation. So mm-hmm. step one, get the vote. Step two, see what you can add to that vote. Ed Mills, let's talk about alternative paths for a moment. Janet Yellen, who we heard from a little bit ago, was asked on ABC this week uh, about a few of them in that interview with George Stephanopoulos, including the 14th Amendment. We've spent some time talking about that. Of course, even the idea of a trillion dollar coin, uh, which has its own cult following now on social media, apparently. Here's what she said about that. Well, I wouldn't be supportive of a trillion dollar coin. I think it's a gimmick and um, it jeopardizes the independence of the Federal Reserve. You would be asking to essentially print money to cover the deficit. Yellen has been quick to shoot this idea down. Jen Psaki, the press secretary at the White House, has been kind of quick to shoot down these ideas of alternatives, saying we have to deal with reality now. The White House doesn't want to seem uh, doesn't seem to want to go near any of these ideas. And I wonder, is that because Democrats know they can use the debt ceiling to their own political advantage next time around? Why get rid of it? I think it's more about not wanting to open up new extraordinary measures. The idea that we use extraordinary measures after the debt limit has technically been breached uh, was something that was unthinkable several years ago, but has now become commonplace. So the more extraordinary the extraordinary measures get, the harder it is to put pressure on Congress. What you really see is a game of brinkmanship where someone says it's impossible to do something, trying to not alleviate the pressure on Congress to act. Congress does like to add things to the debt limit when they're doing it. So there might be some desire of leadership to retain that. But generally speaking, most people view the debt limit as a political issue that just uh, causes more harm than good at this point right it can be an opportunity i suppose depending on how you look at it and that's kind of in the worst way but it's also worth asking uh as we heard comments from janet yellen also saying uh that she would prefer to do away with the debt ceiling didn't want to dig too deeply into that topic uh but it's come up a lot lately jamie diamond along with the president appearing with the president said said as much out loud last week uh in an event that was there to kind of gin up support for raising the debt ceiling is, is that how this should end, Ed Mills, by getting rid of it altogether? And who should have that authority? I think it's unlikely. Spending does originate in Congress. That is Congress abdicating some of their constitutional responsibilities. Um, ultimately, you would need 60 votes under current rules. What you look for is what are some of the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance might have been a filibuster change, but I would look at different ways that Congress could change the debt limit to make sure it's not as big of a deal as we are getting to a a situation, maybe a a resolution of disapproval versus 
a resolution of approval. Okay, or maybe if you if you made it a requirement, maybe it actually automatically increased when you approve new spending. Something like that would still qualify exactly. as getting rid of the so-called debt ceiling, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, I think we use a lot of creative solutions. For years, the only way to do it was through budget reconciliation. It is a recent phenomenon that we have decided to just waive the debt limit. Uh, previously, they used to say as soon as a budget was passed, It was known as the Gephardt rule, where the debt limit was automatically increased with the vote on the the budget. So Congress gets creative, um, and I would expect them to continue to be creative because they don't want the political pressure and the political ads tied to the debt limit. Seems like a ripe time to deal with it. Ed, lastly, you worked on both sides, the House and Senate sides. You were on the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Financial Institutions and Consumer Credit. You're very familiar with this debate here around tax and spending. Do you think Democrats get infrastructure and reconciliation done? I'm going to make it easy on you before the end of the year. I think that's the base case. And the way it's shaping up is that the fiscal spend is going to be front loaded in the first several years the overall tax amount is going to be lower than expected. Those two things would be a market positive. Where does the corporate tax rate end up? 25%. 25. Got a long time between now and then. Do appreciate your time very much. Ed Mills is Washington Policy Analyst and Managing Director at the firm Raymond James with us to get things rolling on Bloomberg Sound On. And many thanks as well to Billy House, Bloomberg Congress reporter, for updating us on all things congressional. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. I want to dig a little deeper into this question of getting rid of the debt ceiling. Imagine a world in which we were not having this conversation right now or next week or next month. Replacing it may be a better word than eliminating the debt ceiling as we consider the Democrats' strategy this time around and the reluctance by this White House, at least at the moment, to talk about alternatives to raising or suspending the debt ceiling. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was asked about this because she has indicated support for getting rid of it. Who could blame her? Asked about it by George Stephanopoulos here on ABC This Week. Listen. We've had deficits for most of the post-war period, and that means raising the debt ceiling. It's a housekeeping chore. There's really, we should be debating the government's fiscal policy when we decide on those expenditures and taxes, um, you call it. not when the credit card bill from comes due. Well, it's coming due on the 3rd of December. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us for the hour as we assemble the panel. Thanks for being with us on this holiday, both of you. I know you work every day, but thank you anyway. Jeannie, we've talked about this before, but to actually hear the Treasury Secretary articulate that 
Why not make that the long-term strategy, right? You get legislation, put it in reconciliation, lift the debt ceiling, and then announce to the world that we have saved you forever from the debt ceiling. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great world? And happy Boston Marathon Day, Joe. Oh, and you um, too. And, you know, it's, I think the, the Gephardt rule that Ed talked about is one that many people have suggested of late we sh- should be revisited. Um, it was 1995 when it was repealed, but it was mm-hmm. in place from 79 to 95. But, you know, there is a, a, a flip side to that that other people have talked about. And that is the fact that that would make a lot of sense if Congress was very strict in terms of what, in fact, the cost estimates were. So they were binding, in other words, that Treasury couldn't borrow more than Congress said. So there's other aspects of this. But indeed, it seems, you know, to people, you know, who run their their households, it seems crazy that we do this in this weird two-step process of spending and then, or allocating spending, and then two years later, another Congress has to come in and authorize the raising of the debt ceiling. I mean, it's ripe for what we're sitting through now. Now. Rick Davis, it was only two months ago, Alan Blinder, uh, former vice chair of the Fed, of course, wrote an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal. A simple rule could end debt ceiling shenanigans. It was the very one that you're talking about. So why not? Yeah, why not? I mean, like you go through all this effort to pass a budget, uh, the budget by its nature, as approved by the House and Senate, carries with it spending that that by definition, unless it's someday a budget that is actually less than current spending, which it never seems to be, um, then then it's going to require a debt ceiling increase. So why don't make it automatic? Um, that's part of what the Gephardt rule wanted to do in the House, but that's just the House. It still takes 60 votes in the Senate, and that's where we got bullocked up last week. So I, I think you're right. I mean, I was surprised uh, to learn, and I thought I'd been around the track a few times to know better, <laughs> that we're only one of two countries in the world that continue to require a vote by their legislature uh, to increase uh, the federal spending over uh, a certain debt amount. So, I mean, I think we ought to just get with it, uh, swallow the poison pill of of debt. Uh, It's all political. And the only reason they haven't done it already, and I think maybe now is the time to take a step back and say, you know what, let's shove all this into that reconciliation and uh, and be done with the politics of of debt limit increases. Isn't there an opportunity here, though, Rick, for Democrats to do something as the majority party now and take credit for it? You could run this, you know, in ads forever. Well, you know, maybe. I mean, like, I'm not sure the American voter wants to see an unlimited credit card, you know, given to their federal government. And look at the conduct that 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 Majority Leader Schumer did when 11 Republicans changed sides and, and voted for the consideration of the debt limit increase. He, he viscerally attacked them. I mean, so uh, I would say if, if, if there was an effort to try and solve this problem in a bipartisan way, it had a huge setback last week. And so, uh, you know, maybe the Democrats have got to figure out another way to do it. Uh, reconciliation seems to be the only alternative and, and maybe they ought to swallow the pill and fix this for, for good. I wonder if you see that's uh, the kind of inevitable uh, ending here, Jeannie, and how you feel after a weekend of political commentary just about the politics. We went from feeling good about something happening, I felt like the end of last week, to really coming back into work with a hangover this morning. And boy, we're going to do this all over again here 
Can infrastructure and reconciliation be handled at the same time as this conversation we're having? Yeah, it's Groundhog Day. You know, we're five or it. six weeks out of doing this all over again. And, you know, uh, I, I think they they could. Um, it I, I There is so much that is up for grabs here. You know, you just talk about, you know, reconciliation and this build back better. Um, you know, you hear Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin sniping at each other. You know, Sanders saying one or two people are stopping Democrats from moving forward. Mansion saying this isn't an entitlement society. <laughs> How do they bridge that gap? Then you add to that, you've got to now lift the debt ceiling. Um, you know, there's just so much on their plate. And as we've always said, the longer this goes, the more chaotic it is. And I would just point to the latest Quinnipiac poll. This has got to be a real concern for the White House and for Democrats as we march into the midterm election. And of course, the Virginia governor's race is coming up in just a few weeks. We're going to get sort of a preview of what this is likely to look like. The chaos that the Republicans wanted is actually in Washington right now. Do you feel the anxiety? As I read on Bloomberg, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon says cryptocurrencies are going to be regulated as anxiety around stable coins and the asset class more broadly has been growing in Washington. Certainly got my attention. Jamie Dimon says he personally, well, you'll have to hear what he says about Bitcoin specifically, spoke about it at the Institute for International Finance annual membership meeting. Listen to Jamie Dimon. I personally think that Bitcoin is worthless. But I don't want to be exposed to it. I don't care. It makes no difference to me. Our clients are adults. They disagree. That's what makes markets. So if they want to have access to buy or sell Bitcoin, you know, it's hard. we can't custody it, but we can give them legitimate, as clean as possible access. Okay, if you want it. And that story on the terminal links to one, arguably more important from days earlier, Treasury pushing to impose bank-like rules on stable coins. Is this finally about to happen? We pick up the conversation with Kristen Smith, Executive Director at the Blockchain Association. It's great to have you, Kristen. Do you cringe when you hear Jamie Dimon say Bitcoin is worthless? <laughs> well, it's clearly not worthless because markets currently think a Bitcoin is valued at $57,000. So if Jamie Dimon thinks he has greater wisdom than the markets, I think he needs to go uh, back and, and uh, read some textbooks. But um, listen, I think He's right in that regulation is coming. Um, there is already regulation in this space, but I think there are probably better ways that we can go about doing regulation of crypto assets. And folks in the crypto community are super open and eager to have this conversation because we do think that having the right proper sort of balance of regulation will make these markets safe. Uh, we'll make these markets something that consumers want to invest in, and we're eager to have a seat at the table and be a part of the conversation. The Blockchain Association, uh, of course, that's your operation, uh, claims to be the unified voice of the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry. And so when you hear stories like this that I just mentioned, uh, the Treasury pushing to impose bank-like rules on stablecoin, is that the beginning of regulating the entire market for crypto? Coins are just one subsector of cryptocurrency, and there are many flavors of stable coins, but the most common are ones that are backed by dollars and, and treasury bills. And, and the point is that you can have the benefits that cryptocurrencies have of being available 24 hours a day, being able to move quickly, quickly and with a low cost um, from person to person, um, but to have that feature of having a stable token so that 
you know, if you decide to wait a few minutes before trading and the price drops, you might have lost out, right? So, so wouldn't that make sense then as a place to start for for the SEC to actually begin writing rules? Yeah, well, for for stable coins, we think banking regulators are probably the better place, right? Because you're dealing with with reserves of dollars that are being held in bank accounts. And we need to kind of rethink, you know, stable coins are full reserve banking, right? They're not fractional reserve banking. So we want to look at um, making sure we have the right kind of regulation. Now, the SEC is a regulator that deals with information asymmetry issues. This is to make sure investors know they have information about the investments that they that, that they're looking to invest in and there is a role for the securities regulators to play and gary gensler the head of the sec is very knowledgeable in this space and has a lot of ideas how to do that and we, we want to be a part of these conversations but you have to remember crypto networks are open source anyone can see um, the information they can go under the hood and look at the code of these crypto networks you can't do that with banks today you can't do that with big internet companies today so we just need to make sure that the regulation fits the risks that these new these cryptocurrencies and the networks that they fuel uh, provide because sometimes the risks are different well i know that you see the space as as already regulated as as an association uh to your point when you hear jamie diamond uh, making comments like this now he thinks bitcoin is worthless but he sees a market there and and JP Morgan like a lot of firms want to be able to do this efficiently and safely you know when is the when when do we get to the point where we're talking about a crypto ETF what's taking Gary Gensler so long yeah well you know Gary Gensler is looking at futures ETFs right now and and to me it's a little bit strange that you would permit a futures ETF without permitting and underlying spot market ETF, right? Because if yeah. the futures are safe, then so is the spot market. So I know that that's something the SEC is actively looking at. But I think more importantly, we need to figure out how investors can get easy access to investing directly into Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's difficult to do that today. Um, there are some amazing products out there that allow you to buy and sell, um, you know, Bitcoin trusts which, are, which sure. are very popular. That's why I ask but, about the but, ETFs, though. Wouldn't that be the easiest way for an average investor who doesn't have a lot of understanding to maybe get some yeah. money in this and do it safely? Yeah, no, you're right. An ETF would be a, a huge step forward. But I'm, I'm not convinced that we're going to see a spot market ETF anytime soon. Um, uh, you know, we may see one on the futures front, but it's, you know, investors want this stuff. I was in an Uber the other day and my Uber driver was telling me how he owns Bitcoin and Litecoin <laughs> and ETH. My hairdresser owns Doge, Dogecoin. These are popular. There's a high demand and we need to figure out a way for investors to get access to these assets. Well, we've heard about this, as I mentioned, from uh, many more firms uh, other than JP Morgan. Is that what finally pushes this over the edge, though? I was referring earlier this hour to Jamie Dimon being part of the conversation last week with Janet Yellen and the president on the debt ceiling. Aren't those the voices that are going to bring the authorities to realize this needs to happen? Well, I think, that yes, those are certainly some of the voices that are out there. I mean, I think, though, what we saw in August with the infrastructure bill and there was some language in there on cryptocurrencies, I think the voices that are ultimately going to make this happen are the individual voices. These are people in the community that are purchasing these assets that are participating in these crypto networks and they get lawmakers every everyday person yes that gets lawmakers involved and i think that if we look to congress right now you know they're realizing that the number of people that are out there who care about 
crypto assets and the crypto networks that that these run in. I mean, this is a this is a huge political force, and so I think we're going to see pressure from Congress ultimately put pressure on on the regulators to do this right. But I am encouraged to see that the Biden administration announced. Um, well, there was reported last week that they're looking at this issue from a multi-agency they are. perspective, and I think that's a very important step forward. We're going to talk about that next with the panel, as a matter of fact. Kristen Smith of the Blockchain Association, we do thank you for being with us. Great to have the executive director on a holiday Monday. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It must be real. The White House considering appointing a crypto czar to act as a point person on the issue, according to Bloomberg News, can already think of a few names to recommend. But clearly the administration is making plans to do something. The headline, White House weighs wide-ranging push for crypto oversight. Jennifer Epstein, Ben Bain report it would be an executive order from the president, part of an effort, they say, to set up a government-wide approach to what they call the white-hot asset class. And we reassemble the panel on this. With Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. And Rick, uh, what's the political motivation for the Biden administration? Wouldn't Republicans love to say Joe Biden managed to ruin this new innovative space we call crypto or or the Democrats cannot stay out of your wallet? Yeah, you see some of that in the uh, financial, uh, House Financial Services Committee a week ago with Gary Ginsler uh, testifying. I mean, the Republicans were all up in arms over, you know, uh, uh, Ginsler not uh, not being serious enough about, you know, protecting uh, investors. And so, yeah, I think this is something that uh, they're not looking at in a partisan point of view. I think they see things like, um, you know, uh, trying to increase uh, anti-money laundering, trying to make sure there's tax assessments that go along with these transactions. I mean, there are a lot of things related to crypto security uh, that the administration is wrestling with. And so I think all these things are probably much more uh, dominant in their list of priorities uh, than uh, than partisanship. Maybe I'm crazy to think something could happen here along with, you know, debt ceiling, government funding, infrastructure, and reconciliation, Genie. But at some point, it looks like they're going to get to this. Gary Gensler has been talking a lot about it. Is a crypto czar the way to go here? Uh, as opposed to creating something a little bit less authoritarian sounding? <laughs> I know. For for a democracy, we love our czars. We do. Um, we really do. And, and you know, I, I do think it would be important, you know, the name aside, that there is a point person in the executive branch. And that's been one of the challenges. And in Ben and Jennifer's piece, I thought they made an excellent point about the fact that one of the real challenges the White House has faced, and not just this White House, is this issue of staff expertise. Do they have the deep expertise in this growing area to handle this issue? So I do think, you know, by executive order, much more likely than by legislation, that we do get them at least moving forward on studying how all of these various agencies are going to work together, what kind of recommendations they're going to be making, and who, quite frankly, is in charge of what. I mean, that is still up in the air. And you know, I think Kristen made an excellent point. Uh, we all know this, you know, Jamie Dimon aside, this is an incredibly popular area. And when there's so much interest and so much money at stake, I do think the White House and Congress is feeling pressure to wrap their hands around it, if you will. Is there a point to pursue this before the end of the year, considering the rest of the agenda, Rick Davis? Yeah, I think this is really, uh, since the administration is really going to take this as a regulatory approach, there's probably not that much that needs to happen with uh, Congress today. 
they will probably start uh, doing things uh, out of the president's working group on financial markets, which include all those different agencies that Jeannie was talking about. And, and each one's got a different cut on this, right? It's not mm -hmm. a one size fits all kind of regulatory approach. And one we don't talk much about, but I know will be important to the Biden administration is the climate risk associated with crypto. Uh, and we see China reacting to the enormous uh, energy drain that has occurred in crypto mining in their country. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's not included in this uh, executive order or the approach that the administration takes. We're talking with Rick and Jeannie on the Monday edition of Sound On, and I'm going to throw you a little bit of red meat. Did you guys see the rally in Des Moines on Saturday? Former President Donald Trump. With the latest campaign-style rally, and so many people have been asking, will he run? He sure was talking like it. We'll see if Rick and Jeannie were moved by it. Even going so far as to suggest a new slogan for the campaign in 2024. Remember, it was originally going to be, well, listen to the former president. It was supposed to be, keep America great, but America's not great right now, so we're using the same slogan, make America great again, and we may even add to it, but we'll keep it. Make America great again again, because we already did it, right? We're going to make America great again again. Again, 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 again. Generating the headline in the Des Moines Register, Donald Trump tells thousands at a rally in Iowa, we're going to take America back. He said a lot more than that which we'll hear about in a second here. But I wonder where you guys are on this. Rick Davis, do you see a campaign for real or are we just having fun touring the country? You know, I spent a lot of time over the last week uh, talking to Republican operatives all around the country and people are totally split on this. I mean, there are some that think, oh, absolutely, he's going to go again. Look at what he's doing. Look at what he's mm -hmm. saying. Uh, you, it, the one mistake people make about Donald Trump is they don't believe what he says. Uh, and so, uh, cause he tends to try, he tends to say the most outrageous things and then follow up on him. Uh, and then there are another class, I'd say another 50% that say, no way he's got so much baggage. He has so many problems. Uh, you know, the uh, Woodward book is banging through basically, uh, showing, you know, this, this look under the covers on January 6th and what happened on the assault, all that's going to while its way through the courts and through Congress. Uh, he's, he's really, uh, in very bad position to run. So I don't know. I, I saw the Des Moines Register poll uh, right before his rally. Uh, he's got uh, still enormous support, 91% amongst Republicans. As he claims, uh, and there it is. And there it is. So, um, you know, there's certainly nothing stopping him from doing it right now. What's your thought on this, uh, Jeannie? And, you know, I can't quite imagine. In, in fact, I'll, I'll listen to a little, just another moment of this, an applause line. That sounds like this. Listen to Donald Trump Saturday night in Iowa. Hillary conceded. I never conceded. Never. I loved it. I never conceded. Jeannie Shanzano. Is he going to run again? Again, again, Joe. Um, again, again, again. He, he very well might. You know, I think, look, there are signs that he's I think he's going to leave himself open to making a decision. I think it's going to, you know, depend an awful lot on what happens in 2022. So, you know, we know there was a report out yesterday or today about the amount of interest he and his team have taken in secretaries of state across the country. You know, people who have a real role in many of our states in terms of how these elections proceed and supporting and endorsing those who are questioning the 2020 election. So I do think he is ratcheting up to run if he so chooses to do that. But I think an awful lot is going to depend on 
how things turn out in 2022. What happens to these now nine Republicans who supported impeachment and he is, you know, going up against what happens to people like Liz Cheney. But, you know, we saw Chuck Grassley having no qualms yes. about saying, you know, what you and Rick were just saying. He's got 91 percent. I'm not crazy. I would be crazy to, not to take the endorsement. And there he did at the age of 88, you know, just saying, I will accept it and, and going all in for Trump again. And so Jeannie sets us up. Uh, let's hear from Senator Chuck Grassley, who showed up that night to speak with Donald Trump, got to the podium. Give it a listen. I was born at night, but not last night. So if I didn't accept the endorsement of a person that's got 91 percent of the Republican voters in Iowa, I wouldn't be too smart. I'm smart enough to accept that endorsement. It doesn't seem like he had to think about it. Donald Trump says, I love you. Be careful going down that ramp. Rick Davis, your old friend Chuck Grassley, is he the honest man in the room or what? Chuck Lashley, I mean, he can uh, he can tell it like it is. Yes. I mean, uh, and uh, and look, I mean, for a guy who's 88 and running for re-election, I mean, uh, I, I think the best advice he got was watch out for that ramp as he left the <laughs> stage. Um, so, look, I mean, this is going to actually affect a lot of people. I mean, uh, Iowa was a big state for Trump. I mean, I think he won it by like 53 percent, 54 percent. Could what Chuck Lashley when- win without him? Um, uh, probably, uh, he certainly has, uh, many, many times without any help from, uh, a president, not yeah. then the left's a Republican president. So sure. But I think, I think the point he was making was why wouldn't I take his endorsement if you the guy's at 91%? I mean, like it was, it was almost like begrudgingly, like I'd be a nut not to say yes, but I'm getting off the stage as quick as possible. Yeah. Uh, well, Donald Trump uh, really raised some eyebrows today as well with a happy birthday video for Ashley Babbitt, who was of course the woman who was killed uh, during the, uh, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. I don't think we really need to hear it. Uh, you can Google that on your own, but to be wishing uh, one of the January 6th rioters a happy birthday. He pledged to stand by her family and support them and, and even called to have the investigation reopened into her death, Jeannie. Uh, my goodness, uh, any future campaign uh, surrogates for Donald Trump are going to have to talk about that if he decides to run again. They will have to. And of course, we shouldn't forget that an awful lot of this depends on what does the committee in Congress find or the commission in Congress find. You do have, I mean, granted, they are not Trump supporters. You do have at least two Republicans on there and they have issued subpoenas. They are hearing on the record from people who were close to Trump and others are fighting, obviously, those subpoenas. But they are trying to work very, very quickly with a lot of fear amongst Democrats on that panel that if they don't get this done now and they lose the House, you know, they may not be able to, you know, finish the job if Republicans take over. So a lot of this is going to depend on what happens there. And, and I don't think, you know, talking about Ashley Babbitt, we cannot forget the seriousness. And we all lived through it firsthand of what happened on January 6th. Yeah. And we deserve a bipartisan investigation that gets to the bottom of it. We're going to hear about that, I'm sure, again, Rick Davis, uh, in our remaining 30 seconds here, though. President Trump continued to say that the election was stolen last week, and that will be something he would carry through a re-election campaign, right? Yeah, these are like pants-on-fire lies that have been debunked many times, but it, it doesn't seem to bother him a bit. So it's going to drive everybody else up the wall, but he's going to continue to make claims not unusual. 
Get ready for more. And big thanks to Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, the classic panel on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. I'll meet you back here tomorrow when the house comes back. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.